Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. Jeff sent me a note. Steve, I don't know if you can do an entire video on this. Uh, well, it's something the Supreme Court is doing, and if they can do an entire hearing on it, I can do a video. The Supreme Court will hear a case with a lot of buts and ifs over the meaning of the word and. and. It's not just the meaning of the word, but how it's construed in certain contexts. I've talked before about statutory construction, how to construe statutes. And so a lot of work is put into how statutes are drafted. And then, of course, a lot of fighting goes on about what it all means. And so sometimes there are issues, and it turns out that there is a big issue with the word and in one particular statute and what it means in that context. So this from the Associated Press, Mark Sherman writes that it's hard to imagine a less contentious or more innocent word than and, but how to interpret that simple conjunction has prompted a complicated legal fight that lands in the Supreme Court on October 2nd, the first day of its new term, what the justices decide could affect thousands of prison sentences each year. And of course, wouldn't conjunction junction play into the, I'm just a bill up on Capitol Hill here? I'm assuming (laughs) that they should be dealing with this also. Federal courts across the country disagree about whether the word, as it is used in a bipartisan criminal justice overhaul from 2018, indeed means and, or whether it means or. Now you'd think, well, and must mean and. So we're talking about what function it has. Even an appellate panel that upheld a longer sentence called the structure of the provision perplexing, perplexing. The Supreme Court has now stepped in and agreed to settle this dispute as best they can. It's the kind of task the justices and maybe their English teachers would like. The case requires the close parsing of a part of a federal statute, which is called the First Step Act, which aimed in part to reduce mandatory minimum sentences and give judges more discretion. In particular, the justices will be examining a so-called safety valve provision that is meant to spare low-level, non-violent drug dealers who agree to plead guilty and cooperate with prosecutors from having to face often longer mandatory sentences. It's much more than an exercise in diagramming a sentence. Remember that? (laughs) Nearly 6,000 people convicted of drug trafficking in 2021 alone are in the pool of those who might be eligible for reduced sentences, according to data compiled by the people who compile that kind of data. Overall, more than 10,000 people sentenced since the law took effect could be affected, according to Douglas Berman, an expert on sentencing at Ohio State University's law school. The provision lists three criteria for allowing judges to forego a mandatory minimum sentence that basically look at the severity of prior crimes. Congress did not make it easy by writing a section in the negative so that a judge can exercise discretion in sentencing if the defendant does not have three sorts of criminal history. The question is whether any of the conditions is enough to disqualify someone or whether it takes all three to be ineligible. Now, lawyers for one man who's an inmate who's challenged the court will hear, and that's who the case is titled after, say all three conditions must apply before the longer sentence is imposed. The government says just one condition is enough to merit the mandatory minimum. The man pleaded guilty to one count of distributing at least 50 grams of meth. Two of the three conditions applied to him, and that was enough for the trial court and the St. Louis-based 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals 
to make him eligible for a mandatory sentence of 15 years. He actually received a 13 and a half year sentence for unrelated reasons. Now, he's 61 years old. He's not scheduled to be released until 2031. And appeals courts based in Chicago, Cincinnati, and New Orleans have all also ruled against defendants. But courts in Atlanta, Richmond, Virginia, and San Francisco have ruled to broaden the eligibility using the safety valve reductions. In one case, in Texas, uh, the defendant was caught with heroin at the border, was given a mandatory 10-year sentence because she had a previous 20-year-old drug offense. She might otherwise have managed to get two years knocked off her sentence. But in San Diego, a man had about 45 pounds of meth on him when he was arrested. He qualified for the safety valve despite his own earlier conviction and avoided an additional year behind bars. A U.S. district judge wrote in his case that the law was ambiguous and both of those cases could be affected by the Supreme Court's decision. Now, linguists who study legal language, believe it or not, uh, have submitted a brief in which they wrote that surveys they conducted found people thought the language was either ambiguous or should be read the way that the legal team argues in the case of the first man we talked about. And here's the thing. When you talk about how to construe a statute, you're supposed to just read the plain language first. What does it say? Okay, if it doesn't need to be interpreted, you don't need to interpret it. What does it say? However, if it's ambiguous, then there's actually rules to what you're supposed to do. And you're supposed to do things like, oh, look at the rest of the statute, see if there's an introductory preface that explains what the statute is supposed to be. Was there an intention uh, displayed by the legislature? Like, here's what we're trying to do here, uh, and so on. But ambiguity in legal documents uh, in a contract setting, there's rules on that, but when it comes to laws, uh, it can often get very confusing. Now, one group which advocates against mandatory minimum sentences has joined the defense lawyers and the ACLU in a filing that argues that mandatory sentences are entirely at odds with what Congress sought to achieve in amending the safety valve provision, that judges be allowed to use their discretion when sentencing low-level, nonviolent drug offenders. Now, they say the language of the statute alone points to a broad reading that would favor defendants. But the concern about the broad reading is that it basically covers everybody. I think it's right that that wasn't Congress's intent. And obviously, they would not write a, 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 an escape clause that applies to everyone. Uh, that wouldn't make much sense. So uh, this man says that that was not Congress's intent. On a court in which several justices across the ideological spectrum say they are guided by the words that Congress chooses, with less regard for congressional intent, that might be enough to favor defendants. Uh, meanwhile, there's a, a recent justice who's joined the court, Jackson, whose prior experience as a member of the U.S. Sentencing Commission could be important to the court's resolution of the case. The safety valve has been attractive both to prosecutors and defendants because it helps obtain convictions faster and allows for more nuanced prison terms, according to Berman. Congress could clarify the law, meanwhile, no matter which side wins. And even if the plaintiff here, actually it's a defendant, but he's the person bringing this, even if he prevails, judges will not be obligated to impose lower sentences. They just will not be compelled to give mandatory ones. And so the case is called Pulsiver versus U.S., and they expect a decision 
in the spring. And so that is the kind of thing you encounter about how to interpret a statute. So the statute says you must have the following things to get here. And you look at the list, and the first thing lawyers do is they look at the second to last one to see if it's joined with an and or an or. So you see one, two, three, four, and five. Or one, two, three, four, or five. And you see that's a huge difference. But when you write it backwards and say, well, none of the following, it, it does get confusing. And so the bizarre part about this is that it appears to be causing turmoil in the federal courts all across the nation, where some courts have gone one way, some courts have gone the other way. Meanwhile, what is, what is Congress doing? <laughs> I haven't checked lately. What are they doing? And there should be somebody in Congress, especially somebody who drafted or worked on drafting this bill, who should say, well, when we were drafting the bill, we wanted it to have this effect. And so it doesn't matter which side of this you're on. It would be nice if Congress would clarify it. So Congress could have clarified it. I think it dates back to, what, 2018? But they haven't. And so now the Supreme Court's going to have to step in and go, okay, here's what we think it means. And no matter which way they come down on it, half the people there are going to go, no, we disagree with that. And I understand that's what happens in, in most cases. There's winners and there's losers, right? But somebody up on Capitol Hill must have heard about this by now. I mean, I heard about it. <laughs> and there must be somebody in Washington who actually cares, who actually says, oh, we drafted that and we meant it to mean this. And I can tell you that years ago, I've mentioned the Consumer Protection Act in Michigan, the Consumer Protection Act. And the Consumer Protection Act was a very, very powerful statute that we used for many, many years to help consumers. And then the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that it doesn't really apply to consumers in Michigan. It's, 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 it was poorly written, and it doesn't really apply to anybody, as far as we're concerned. And they basically gutted the act. And so the interesting thing is that I, at one point in time, was speaking at a conference, and I mentioned the fact that there was actually one mildly ambiguous subsection buried in all of the things that were forbidden by merchants uh, in a consumer setting. And a guy came up to me and he introduced himself to me. He said, hey, Steve, I'm so-and-so. And I recognized the name. He was the primary drafter of that bill. And he said, we intended it to work exactly what you are saying it should do. Unfortunately, once we drafted it, it went to committee, it went here, it went there. It got modified so many times that it got rewritten to a point where it was no longer clear what we were trying to do at that exact moment in time in that one subsection. He goes, but you're absolutely right. That's what we intended. But I can't go into court and say, well, I talked to the guy who drafted it, and he said it was supposed to say this, because that's not what it said when it got passed as a law. And so there's groups of people who write these laws. They go through committee. They go here. They go there. They get revised. It passes one house, gets sent to the other house, where they change it and pass it. So now they got to send it back. To, and so by the time you're done, you know, it's, it's extremely hard for anything to be done by a committee. But it's even harder when it's done by different committees in different buildings, <laughs> different, different ends of the building, I guess, in Washington. And so the Supreme Court will fix this in terms of they're going to say what it means. Here's how the courts will rule on this in the future. But Congress could step in right now and just go, you know something, we'll just take care of that. 
We'll, we'll just we'll just resolve that and and rewrite that one su- one subsection. But I have to tell you that they talk about linguists who deal in law and legalese. Um, I have a friend who teaches logic. Hey Tom, how you doing? And Tom teaches logic, and he's one of the people who pointed out to me that uh, logicians, people who study logic, um, sometimes uh, find the world a disturbing place uh, and confusing in how language is used. And he says, so for instance, you're at a restaurant, and it says this meal comes with uh, scrambled eggs and toast or hash browns. And he goes, technically speaking, the way that's written, the way the logicians would read that is you get scrambled eggs, toast, or hash browns. You can actually say I want the toast and the hash browns because that is toast or hash browns. (laughs) And so it really ought to read, you get the scrambled eggs, and one of the following, toast or hash browns. But that's not how it's ever written. But most people, when they're reading a menu, understand that in the world of menu language, when they say you get this or this, it's pick one. But technically speaking, a logician would say, well, but to satisfy that requirement of this or this, selecting both is also correct. But again, logic and menus uh, don't often intersect. So there you go. But this will be an interesting one to see what happens. But yes, the Supreme Court is literally going to hear a case over largely the function of the word and in a statute. And what does it mean in that context? So Jeff, thanks for sending from the Associated Press. Mark Sherman wrote it. Questions or comments, put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough.